This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about The Variable Man by Philip K. Dick, a novel, novella, I guess, from uh, Space Science Fiction, September 1953, which is a UK science fiction magazine, didn't run very long. Um, I don't remember if there's other Philip K. Dick stories in Space Science Fiction, but uh, it has some nice illustrations. Um, This is one of the first stories I put up on my website when I was going deep into... uh, Philip K. Dick, and I don't like this story very much. <laughs> oh, wow. I know, I know, right? I, I, I want to like it. And Evan, I was listening to your podcast, and you're very enthusiastic about this story. Yes, I am. I, I, I liked all the reasons you explained, but it still mm-hmm. doesn't do it for me. Um, why don't you recap your enthusiasm? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I go at all these things so thematically. Mm-hmm. and It's very I, thematic. I'm not as interested in the, like, like even like Vulcan's Hammer, a story everyone says stinks. I, I'm kind of interested in the themes of what it's trying to say about big data and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that's my, what I'll start to say is there's reasons people often don't like stories that, that I'm a bit blinkered by, I guess. So I'm open-minded. If people say this story stinks, you know, that might be right from a literary point of view or or, to, or as art. But um, it just hits so many, I think, important elements mm-hmm. that are often neglected when people look at Philip Dick, especially when they back-read him. They, they kind of start where he ended up. And so a lot of people come at Philip Dick interested in, like, the shifting realities, the drug culture, mm-hmm. religion stuff, the what is human, which is really where he's what he's thinking about in the late 60s and, and 70s and 80s um but his themes in the 50s are are really things like the frontier about a lot about labor and the meaning of of labor and uh, you know he's got these a lot of interesting authoritarian dystopias which are kind of anti orwellian i mean in orwell's dystopia the state is always it, dur- it will dure forever, right? Mm-hmm. It's the smashing on the human face for all time. But in a lot of Dick's early dystopias, everything from Solar Lottery to what you have in The Variable Man, Man Who Japed, they're all very fragile and can be changed and challenged, um, sometimes from within, sometimes from without. And you have a bit of that here, too. I mean, even one of the final inventions talked about that that uh, scientists are going to work on with coal is like direct democracy, almost, right? A voting machine. Right open up the door to direct democracy. So there's that kind of optimism in this. And I think at the heart of it, this is a story about the frontier, which I think is really great that even though earth loses the war at the end, it doesn't matter because they, they have the whole universe open to them, mm-hmm. which I think is such a good challenge to the kind of the, the narrow mindedness of cold war thinking. Mm-hmm. That's some of the reasons I like the story. It's also um, one of the, I was looking back at the chronological order of Dick wrote these, which is how the collected stories are arranged. Mm -hmm. And I, there are, there are technocratic characters, there's scientists, but this may be, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm fairly confident. This is the first tinkerer hero 
in in Dick's fiction, which is a character who comes up a lot mm-hmm. in, in other stories. His characters do like to putter about in their small lands. And here we have someone who back in the 20th century would just be an average putterer. And he's catapulted into a society where those skills are forgotten and actually useful. Or or am, am I reading it badly? I know Jesse doesn't like this, so I'll talk to you directly, Evan. Is, <laughs> it, yeah. is, is it more that he's preternatural in fixing things? and I'm, there's, Or is it just that... That the skills are so, or skills are just so degraded that anybody could fix it, but just no one, no one has a skill anymore. So an ordinary 20th century man can fix this stuff in a way that our degenerate future cannot. Well, it's it's really preposterous in the story, right? That this guy can not only fix but improve these technologies. Yeah, uh, I wasn't sure. Just because he's a generalist, I think that's the point Dick's making. But I think if you, you kind of just accept that. The point here is is really about the the value of the, the general tinkerer versus the technocrat, mm-hmm. right? And the technocrat serves the state. The technocrat uh, serves power and institutions, and it takes someone with a completely different worldview. Um, I come out of academia, and you know I've kind of turned my back largely on it, and you know it because it does limit you in what you can do. You, you can't be a generalist, right? It's, you're forced into those narrow corridors of specialization. And specialization does, it seems to me, promote hierarchies. Because it, it allows people to say, I know more than you about this, and there's no way you can ever reach my level of expertise. And there's power in that, those kind of statements and those beliefs. I want to um, give a quote here that uh, is appropriate for a recent uh, podcast we did. Uh-oh. I think you know where you're going to go with, Jesse. Good. I'm finally getting ahead of Paul in the uh, the quickness game here. Okay. <laughs> a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate... Act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, flight, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Yes, Heinlein. Yes, <laughs> I knew I knew exactly where you're going. All right, Jesse. So I think that he is definitely taking this on board, uh, this idea. Um, and I agree with you, Evan. That's exactly what academia is all about. Is yeah. is the more specialized in you know esoteric order uh, that nobody but other uh, other uh, I was going to say intellectuals, but that's not the word for it. Mm-hmm. Academics um, yeah. can possibly appreciate the more um, sort of fetid you are, right? Uh, ooh, he's done his. Uh, his dissertation on something nobody's interested in. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think about how uh, Philip K. Dick um, doesn't fit into his own environment. Uh, you know, he's a writer. Uh, most people are not writers. So he, you know, that he he's walking down the street and seeing people mowing their lawns and getting on the bus, and those people are not writers. So. Um, I, I was also thinking, like, what is this all about? Because this shows up again and again and again. And I agree with you, Evan, that um, something I never thought about before you started talking about it, and I've been, you know, reading Philip K. Dick for a long time, is the frontier and how important it is to him. And and what this story really is to me, it's like 
what what's happened is Philip K. Dick has gotten his car, which is not a new car, and he's driving down the road, maybe with his wife, uh, who knows for what reason, um, and the car breaks down. And they, they walk to the nearest house, they call a tow truck, the tow truck takes it to the nearest garage where a guy who's got a much lower vocab than, than Philip K. Dick and doesn't think about stuff very much um, says, I'll have a look. Right, gets under there, and while he's he's digging around under the hood of the of PKD's car, uh, PKD's out in the parking lot thinking, you know, the vehicle is very important for mobility in these days, and how can we possibly move to a new place without our vehicles? And I, what are the, what do you think the chances of him being able to fix it are? Oh, it could be as low as one in a hundred, or it could be as high as. Seven over six. <laughs> and then the guy sort of ambles out of the garage and say, yeah, I need to order some uh, parts. I'll be here in about 15 minutes and, and then you'll, you'll be getting going. Right. And then he walks back into the garage, <laughs> wiping his hands. And Philip K. Dick's like, my God, this is amazing. Right? <laughs> and that's basically where the story came from. Right. Is, and he has this experience again and again. And I, I, I kept thinking about, why I also don't like the Golden Man very much. But at least that one I got a lot of humor, right? The Golden Man is the same idea. There's this massively suave individual who's completely like a chicken head, right? He just doesn't have anything going on upstairs. And in, in this story, we've got a, bu- a bunch of functionaries who who have some plan um, I can't really sympathize with. And then we've got our, our coal figure who... He really has nothing going on except he likes coffee and he notices ladies' boobs. But that's it, right? He doesn't have a personality going. He really is like the proto-tinkerer. Like he's not – there's no like of that anxiously smoking cigarettes right. or like anxiety about stuff. Right, and I wanted him to sleep with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it also fits in with, uh, you know, um, Time Pond or um, Dr. Futurity. It's the same situation where you've got some guy from the past who – who uh, transported into the future, but instead of being super competent uh, with his old skills, he's completely useless because nobody <laughs> wants his skills, right? And it, there, there's some—he's definitely saying something about about the interaction between um, specialization and you know, uh, most people have phones today, right? Almost nobody who owns a phone can fix their phone. So when it goes bad, they take it to the quote-unquote genius store. Right or genius bar, where a bunch of people who are not geniuses go back into the back room, which is a black box, hook it up to a computer that says basically, uh, we don't know what's wrong with it, can't be fixed. Totally. <laughs> and they, they walk back out and and because they they're called geniuses, even though they're being paid you know slightly more than minimum wage, people say, oh yeah, I guess I have to buy that new phone, right? Because the the replacement cost is super high. It's that's the he's definitely on to something, but as a story, I don't find it enter, entertaining to read at all. Like I love reading Philip K. Dick. It just doesn't feel like that, even though it's from the period where I, I like most of his stuff. So, I guess I ruined the the 
show. Yeah. But uh, you have not well, ruined the that's show. That's Jesse doesn't well, like it. No, just can't be good if Jesse <laughs> doesn't. Like Short, sh- shortest SFO audio episode in history. No. <laughs> so, uh, have any of you is, seen the Robert McMahon era documentary, The Fog of War? Mm-hmm, it's like must mm-hmm. be for a decade old now. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's the passage where he's talking about the bombing of Japan. And they even have an image in that section where they, they have equations and numbers dropping instead of over, overlapping the dropping of the bombs on, on Japan and the firebombing. And the point of that section was the kind of the bureaucratization of war, right? That the, the real people who planned and, and affected that war were not generals, really. It was people with, you know, spreadsheets. Right, computing how can we maximize the the damage to a town with minimizing the loss or whatever, and it was a, it was a numbers game. Roar had become a numbers game, and that was the one of the points he was making about that. And I and I I don't know that seems really true to life to me. Mm-hmm. That part of it, that part of of war just becoming uh, something that's calculated with with computers, and you know, and I don't know that much about how wars are fought now, but I think it's probably pretty much how it is at least for a superpower like the united states you know with a trillion dollar military budget there's definitely people with spreadsheets in the back rooms but i don't think that they are guiding the the policy as much as they are solving the policy problems that are presented with Yep, they're they're Mm -hmm. not guiding the policy. So this is this has lost me to launch into uh, one of my favorite movies. I think Jesse, you've seen this movie. I don't know about Marissa and Evan. That movie would be Colossus: The Forbin Project. Mm -hmm. And in in that movie, which is uh, which was filmed in the 1970s, and it feels like 1970s, a computer is basically giving control over all of the United States armed arms, including nuclear weapons, in a way to try to stop war so they can do proportionate responses and basically analyze situations. And long story short, the Russians build one, the two computers team up, and they take over the world. The spreadsheets conquer humanity because they have control of all the weapons and they're super intelligent machines. So that's the logical extension of letting the spreadsheets dictate everything. You basically wind up with a soulless sort of... uh, dictatorship i mean the novels in the novels because they came from a novel and there were two sequels which were never filmed uh, humanity eventually breaks free but yeah in 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 the movie in the first novel humanity winds up going under the tyranny of the computer slash spreadsheet which makes me think of this novel and and our protagonist falling into are any of you familiar with the idea of hydraulic empires yes nope yeah yeah I, i i know about that so, so a hydraulic empire is basically um, a polity that has control over a a critical resource, and as a result, they can basically exert a tyranny. Water being the most classic one, but there are plenty of other examples in fiction and nonfiction which which use that as a, as an idea to uh, con- construct a dictatorship. And and yeah, I want to add not- one little point to this, Paul, and I'll let you finish because it's it's important to it. Sure. At least in my understanding of hydraulic states, it's it's not just that they control the resource and therefore can control society because they have a monopoly on it. it like because the classical case of this is China, and it's because of the nature of the 
the infrastructure that needed to be invested in for irrigation or dikes or dams and controlling the water mm-hmm. and getting it to where it needed that necessitated a strong state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, security it, 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 kind of comes out of the nature of the resources. I mean, well, Toynbee gets into this stuff too a little bit, like how ecology, the environment leads to the the type of state. But anyways, yeah. go on. Yep, yeah. yep. So, I mean, so the, 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 the classic, and we've done this on the show recently, yeah. and I, I kicked myself for not talking about hydraulic empires, was Dune. Dune mm. is a hydraulic yeah. empire mm. where the spice is... The spice must flow and everything falls out of that. And all the infrastructure devoted to that is crucial because without the spice, you have no galactic civilization whatsoever. So here we seem to have, we have, we have earth facing up against a decaying Centauran empire, which reminds me of something else, but I'll talk about that later. But basically through the tyranny of bureaucracy and trying to figure out the numbers, they basically have a hydraulic and everyone being so specialized that they can't even fix those basic things. They seem to have a hydraulic state that just takes a single push to push over. And that push is a 20th century generalist tinker. I mean, just like one small, one small intrusion is enough to send the, send the, 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 the state into a whole new form. I mean, right. earth doesn't fall. Go ahead, Marissa. I was going to say they not only um, can't fix, <clears throat> they are not allowed to fix. Like they're not, they're not allowed to behave any way that's uh, variable. Correct. Mm. I guess. No, 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 no. That, yeah, that's yeah, that's, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, like they're not all the variable. Yeah, yeah. All the numbers are based on everyone behaving. Like that's why they can predict stuff. Everyone has to behave exactly as they say, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. So, so yeah. So so yeah. So we have we have a hydraulic state here that yeah just just takes one small change to push over and we get that change the the titular variable man and and nothing can be the same afterwards which makes me think of a whole bunch of other novels like say larry niven's a world out of time and other things where you have one small intrusion changing what seems to be a perfect stasis into a whole new form yeah did you guys see um philip k dick i guess he was writing about this a little bit but like that his his um, teenage story, Stability, mm-hmm. is like the same thing. It's the, I don't know if you remember, it's the weird guy with the wings that invents the time travel device. Mm. And then uh, the meddler as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This Where is a go. very common sort of sub-theme in his, in his stuff. There's The one I, yeah. I was thinking about is um, Paycheck, which I like quite a bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's got this mystery element that, that is like, what the hell? What, how, why would you present yourself with this stuff? <clears throat> the character is uh, slightly more um, interesting, I guess, but he's not super interesting. The, I, I want to point out that on the Wikipedia entry for The Competent Man, they also have a subsection, which is just made up of one sentence that I think is very funny and, uh, and kind of sort of, this is why I'm glad Philip K. Dick doesn't write this stuff all the time. Um, it's, it's the hex, the section's called competence porn. <laughs> so like, like this. <laughs> a particular type of entertainment, which, which has been critically referred to as quote unquote competence porn involves <laughs> impressive feats of human capability. Examples being the strate- strategizing of the characters in house of cards, <clears throat> the medical acumen of Gregory house and the detective brilliance of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and then there's a citation, but then the sentence continues. Or almost any John Scalzi protagonist. 
<laughs> oh, somebody, somebody has an axe to grind in that. Uh, but I think that that I think that that is really um, it's true that that we know it when we see it. We enjoy. So another one I would have added to that list is is um, uh, the main character from Breaking Bad, right? Who he's got he's presented with all these sort of rock and hard place problems, and then basically once a season he solves it, right? By mm-hmm. doing some chemistry or like. And you know he's got flaws and stuff, but th- those those parts were super enjoyable in the way. Oh, he's doing science, right? <laughs> he's doing something engineering based, where almost all things that are based on, um, I don't know, that are called science fiction don't have that. It's so awesome to see it when somebody actually like says, "Oh my God, we're gonna do some science." Oh my God, helium has these properties. Finally, somebody's gonna right. And that makes me really happy when I when I see it because it's so infrequent. But in in regular SF, like almost everything in analog, that is typically uh, the normal, the norm, and I don't like it. But outside of outside of the written, I think is really important to see it. Um, and that's why you know the show House was good, right? It's not because uh, I liked all the other doctors and characters there. I liked. Um, seeing somebody who was good at their job um, and, you know, informing me about the, it was like you play along, you know, you've got these uh, <laughs> symptoms and you need to solve them. Here, it's a, it's much more black boxy. So we, we have this guy who improves the kid's vid sender, right? Um, so he improves it so much that it actually can function. And they say something like a, a, a real vid sender would be the size of a, a 20 ton safe which i thought is not really the size of anything as, as much as the mass right um yeah but uh really interesting uh, in thinking about what was going on um at least early in the book here i was thinking well maybe they're just everyone else is just super incompetent because the the preternatural ability to just fix things that this guy has don't seem to be justified in the way that they are with a story like the golden man where he's a genetic freak, right? This is just a regular dude walking down the right. road. And and he is the hydraulic empire in some way, right? He he's like the like the the doctor futurity thinks he's going to be, right? That he's he's going to have this this ultra skill and he yeah. I don't think I, he ever practices his medicine when he gets well I guess he does a couple times. But um there there's a, a similar story um uh in uh, the Marching Morons, right, where you've got somebody from the past who's just average ability, you know, average intellect, and he's he becomes the the kingdom king of the uh, the one king I of the world, to, yeah, yeah, the one, I, yeah, because because his average intelligence is, is higher, and right? I, yeah, so, so except for that small clique of people who are also average intelligence, he's one of the smartest people right. in the world. And in that same yeah. in that same Cyril M. Cornbluth universe that's very small, just includes two stories, um, there's also a story called The Little Black Bag, which is about a time-traveling doctor's bag <laughs> that goes into the future. Um, and a, uh, I guess a bum alcoholic finds it in a back alley. And, you know, it's it's such a competent bag that it can cure anybody's diseases. So he just, you know, uses it to, you know, cure people's, you know, hangnails or whatever. 
and uh, and then he takes the money that they give him to buy alcohol. So it's it's like a, a inverse competence sort of satire. Uh, yeah, dealing with what I was reading it like much more like um, the machine stops with that society right, where everyone right, is right. just oh, yeah. yes totally reliant on on computers and machines. And and I was also thinking in that scene where um, he's he fixes the kid's vid sender, which. I was thinking, what is a vid sender? Is it FaceTime? Because it's, like, it's kind of <laughs> that's that's, that's the impression I got. Yeah, yeah it's, it's FaceTime. Okay, so uh, this could be funny if someone adapts because this is public domain, right? Yes, it is. I feel like someone should adapt this one. It could be really well, funny. That's, with that's what Evan, you were saying. This is make yeah. a really good movie. It, yeah, it's like a it's really structured like a like modern Very story much, as well. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't have a lot of um, fat, but it definitely has the visuals that that people would want i, I think it'd probably be a better <laughs> movie than it is a story personally just I, I don't find myself enjoying it the way i want to enjoy a <laughs> philip k dick story but mm-hmm. um i was thinking about how how uh that scene is so funny too because it's like um philip k dick is you know his kids are playing uh with some you know i don't know wind up robot or whatever and uh it stops working and they're arguing with each other, just like the two kids were in the early book. And Philip K. Dick uh, says, let me fix that. <laughs> he opens it up and, I don't know, changes the batteries or whatever, and then hands it back to them and, yay, it's, it's a real robot now, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, that is sort of the competence of an adult. Um, but on the other hand, Philip K. Dick has taken the sort of the childlike... Um, uh, I don't know, ability to transform uh, objects that are not real into fantasy real objects. So this happens again and again in stories with uh, games, right? He, there's a, a game called war, uh, story called War Game, right? I think that's the one where uh, the Venusians, no, it's the Jovians, are, are trying to invade the Earth by using board games. <laughs> toys right and they let the wrong one through the custom that's right right. and it's like it's just basically monopoly right and now it's going to take over the world and and the thing is that i think that that is um it is a model right it's a tiny little model when we when we're sitting down to play monopoly we don't think of it as like um as just uh uh a simulator (laughs) for for uh, capitalism but that's what it is right it's a capitalism simulator and it, everybody ends up angry except for one person who wins right <laughs> frustrated and walk away but uh it, it is a simulator right it is a it is a game like other kids games but one that can be played with adults and and then the adults sort of see it as for what it is sometimes and the kids uh just see it as something fun right they don't they don't quite see that. Oh, this is actually the bad thing that we we're seeing all around us. As why, mommy, why do we have to move? We can't afford to live here anymore. The landlord's raising the rent. <laughs> None of that stuff is showing up in this actual <laughs> game. But there's something very interesting. That'd be a great addition, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that was the original design for. Uh, that was the purpose of Monopoly was to show the evils of capitalism. Yeah. Right, and it's just—it's very interesting to see how the interplay between toys and games and uh, sort of comp- hyper competence in in one area is sort of 
um, not not expressed in like this competent man, right? He just goes around fixing things for coffee and donuts, right? He doesn't. Yeah, he got anything to eat is the first thing he asked. Yeah. About. It's like, like I know he's hungry, but still, that's that seemed a rather limited sort of view of his own abilities. But I think I think that's the like he's that's kind of the point is he is he is he's like the golden man he doesn't have like a a, a i guess a vivid mental life is is what we're supposed to think and even the, mm-hmm. the i guess the one character in this story who does the uh the soviet guy or the Ru- russian guy um the the pole yeah Shalikov. yeah he's polish i think yeah, yeah well yeah he's Sherikov? Yeah, but he's under the uh, Urals, right? So he's some sort of uh, Soviet scientist, is my. I think he's like Korolev, or Korolev, right? He's he's trying to get their uh, rocket systems going. Um, mm-hmm. And they're ho- I I think that the world that Philip K. Dick lays down in this story is much more interesting than than the story itself, as as you're pointing out, Evan. It is a mm-hmm. dystopia. The um, the way they're all hyper focused on on expansion seems insane, but on the other hand, uh, I was thinking like, what? Why do we never see the uh, Centaurans, their empire? We're told all about it. We never see anything from their point of view, do we? Well, Paul, you had you said you had something to say about their empire. I I did. So this is this is in relation to the. Role-playing game Traveler, mm-hmm. which I don't know if any of you are familiar yep, with. Yep. Okay, so in 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 the in the in the not in the actual game normal play where you play it, but in the back prehistory, Earth comes out, ex- starts to expand, and runs immediately into the big empire of the time, the Volani, who have got control all the all the jump points, all the trade routes. There's nowhere for humans to go, and just because the Volani are decadent like in this story is the, about the only reason why they haven't already long since come over and conquered earth when they were back in the stone age. So earth is kind of the, the David versus the, the decaying giant of the Volani empire. And the early history of the travel universe is earth trying to figure out a way to outdo the, 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 the Volani. And eventually they do eventually take them over in a war. They don't use um, Dick's solution here, basically just transcending the empire with with the new improved uh, FTL drive, but it's that whole conflict of young pushing expansionist Earth versus a a much larger decaying empire, but still one that could just smash Earth flat if it really decided to try and do it. And the only reason why the empire hasn't is because they don't have the basically the will the will to power to actually just go ahead and devote the resources. I, I get, I, I mean, I, I did read a lot of the law, Lo- the into the Centauran empire in the story and think like, Oh yeah, if the Centauran actually really cared enough, earth, earth would be dead in a month, but they just don't have the, uh, the oomph to actually go ahead and actually expend those resources. While earth is kind of like all boxed in on all sides and is tr- trying to punch out any way it's can. Yeah. He comes back to that so much in the, in these 50 stories, this need to, earth to break out it's mm-hmm. it's such a big theme like the world jones made for instance mm-hmm. this uh, you know how do we do this and this kind of ends up with the same conflict do we do it through the state do we do it through kind of imperial ambition or is it the scientists figuring out actually how to genetically 
engineer the Venusians or something. Or I think is that, it just getting your story. motivation up to get on the Oregon Trail, right? Like, yeah, uh, there's uh, so many stories where there's the jalopy sort of spaceship, right? <laughs> the Noser or the Jitney. And uh, this one, this one, they don't have that yet because the the very first machine is is sent off to the stars. But you, you get the sense that there's going to be a used car lot pretty soon. <laughs> People are going to be uh, traveling to these new worlds and unfolding them. Absolutely. I want to say something else about the toys thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. This is probably that there may not be a relation, but I, I was thinking of of. Um, Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore's story, Mimsy or the Borgoves, um, because they, I mean, I know that's all about a toy, right? That, in that mm. story, the toy is sent back in time, and then it transforms the kids into brilliant, you know, people who understand. I, it's been a while since I read it, but they, they understand how time travel and all the advanced knowledge comes via the toy, Right. So it's it's the mm-hmm. future teaching the, the, the past by accident. Right. By accident. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he was just sending the guy from the future was just sending back things as experiments. Right. Mm-hmm. And the kids pick it up here. It's it's the past teaching the future some new thing. And again, you have a toy as a as a device in here. Here it's that's the first thing he fixes is the is the child's toy. I don't know if he read that story or was thinking about it, but mm-hmm. it, it seems on some level there's a a mirroring of a conversation of here. Yeah. Speaking of a conversation, I want to uh, bring in water spider um, at this point. Um, so this is a 1963 story. I don't remember where it was published, but um, I've got a, a fairly big paragraph here. I'd like to read. Um, <laughs> this is kind of interesting. His second in command, Peter Bailey stuck his head into this reference room. Hey Nils. I've been looking over that micro-repro of this particular old precog journal, astounding, like you told me. The Venus Equilateral equilateral article about matter transmission. I mean, even though I was the top vid repairman in New York City, that don't mean I can build one of these things, he glared at Nils. That's asking a lot. Nils said tightly, we've got to get back to Earth. You're out of luck, Bailey told him. Better settle for prox. Furiously, Nils swept the micro-reproductions from his table onto the floor of the ship. That damn Bureau of Emigration, they tricked us. Bailey shrugged. Anyhow, we've got plenty to eat and a good reference library and 3D movies every night. By the time we get to Prox, Nils snarled, we'll have seen every movie, he calculated, 2,000 times. Well, that don't watch. (laughs) Or we can run them backwards. How's your research coming? I got the micro of an article in Space Science Fiction, Nils says said thoughtfully, called The Variable Man. It tells about faster-than-light transmission. You disappear and then reappear. Sonic guy named Cole is going to perfect it, according to the old-time precog <laughs> who wrote it. <laughs> he, he's rooted about that. If we could build a faster-than-light ship, we could return to Earth. We could take over. That's crazy talk, Bailey said. Nils regarded him. I'm in command. Then Bailey said, We've got a nut in command. There's no returning to Terra. We, we better build our... <laughs> Lives on Proxima planets and forget about ever going to our home. Thanks, thank God we got women aboard. <laughs> what? My God, if we did get back, what one, what could one inch high people accomplish? We'd be jeered at. Nobody jeers at me, Neil says quietly. But then, 
but he knew Bailey was right. They'd be lucky if they could research the micros of the old precog journals in the ship's reference room and develop them, them develop for themselves a way of landing safely on Proxima's planets. Even that was asking a lot. Well, we'll succeed, Nils said to himself, as long as everyone obeys me, does exactly as I tell them, with no dumb questions. Bending, he activated the spool of the December 1962 IF. There was an article in that that particularly interested him, and he had four years ahead of him in which to read, understand, and finally apply it. What is that story? He wrote like a meta story? <laughs> it is a meta story. Yeah, it is. That is wow. very meta fiction. And this was published in what, 83? It's 63. Oh, 63. Oh, that sounds so fun. I have to wow. read that. Wow. That, commenting on his own work, that's kind of, yeah. that's, that's very PKD. Mm-hmm. And all the science yeah. fiction magazines? Yeah. That's hilarious. And you can yeah, that's of- the best story that does that. But there's another Orpheus with clay feet that I think mm-hmm. does it. But I just noticed oh, another reference to him referencing one of his old stories from the 50s mm-hmm. in We Can Build You, which I think that was actually written in the, around the time of Man in the High Castle. But they're, they're, they invent these robots and they don't know how to, what to do with them, how to market them this little company and they get this idea from a, from a science fiction magazine uh, to, to market them as nannies. Mm-hmm. And it mm. seems to be a reference to, nanny. to Dick's story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dick's story's nanny. Uh, yeah. I just want to point out that, um, this story water spider was point uh, was published in if in January, 1964, um, which would have come out in 1963. Um, so, uh, the, um, the reference at the end there to a December, 1962 issue of if he's probably referencing one of his stories as well. It's, he's being very clever here. Um, but I just think it's interesting because he's, he's, the characters are thinking that these are precog journals, right? So precogs Mm -hmm. are science fiction writers and that they're articles and not stories, right? Is how, uh, yeah. how you're going to build the future. <laughs> how does how does uh, Cole fix the problems in these things? Oh, he just looks at them, right? And then the fa- he can fix them. Um, <laughs> has, he, has he got, like, welding skills and and uh, soldering skills? Right? Micro-soldering so- skills? He's, he's like a, I don't know, a, a handyman, right? But uh-huh. he's the ultra-competent handyman who can... As Heinlein would say, you know, uh, shoe a horse and uh, run a government and all that 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 competence porn stuff. It's 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 very it's very fun meta stuff in this story. I just don't, I I've, I'm thinking about all the stories he's writing with fantasy sort of fantasy as the main element. Or there's another one that I'm gonna do a show on on reading short and deep called uh, Strange Eden. You got you. You all know this story, Evan. Do you remember mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't. Thomas. Okay, so mm-hmm. Strange Eden is is they've got a competent spaceship. Two guys land on a planet. There's the captain and the other guy. <laughs> and it's an unspoiled wilderness, beautiful. And uh, one of the the other guy gets off the boat, and he starts looking around, and he says, "Yep." Pretty soon, this place is gonna be. As soon as they find out about it, it's gonna be covered in old beer cans and the. Uh, and there's going to be jet engines in the lake, <laughs> you know, broken jet engines in the lake. You know, if I uh, in, if I can get enough money together, maybe I could 
start subdividing and get in on some of that before it gets ruined, right? And he keeps walking. And then he sees a giant wild animal that's like a, a, a um, I guess a, a tiger or something like that. It's a, the planetary equivalent of a tiger, and it's sleeping. And he says, oh, good. And he gets his gun out, and he's about to shoot it with his slem ray or whatever. Or it's, maybe it's an R pistol. I think there's a slem ray in this, isn't there? Slem gun? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's about to shoot it with his slim ray, and then another one comes wandering by, and oh damn! Uh, I, I guess I'll just keep going because he was gonna he was gonna take that that uh, kill that monster and mount its head and tell tell the captain that he he would he was attacked and he heroically saved himself and right he's just basically an asshole braggart character right and he keeps walking. <laughs> And then he sees, uh, oh, there's a house. Damn, this planet's occupied. And in the yard, there's all these animals, and they're all tame. And then there's a lady, and she's, Uh-oh. and she's, she's like, oh, come on in, and well, or whatever. It's a retelling of uh, Cersei, Cersei, the Cersei mm-hmm. episode. And what's funny is it never says that in the story, right? You, there's a reference. She talks about her brother. And Cersei has a brother, and it's the same character, right? But it, it it's just like that's the kind of Philip K. Dick story where I like I just light up, and my brain's like, oh yeah, because what he's done is he's he's got past the point of you know getting those rocket ships off the ground, and then he's landing on the planets, and uh, it, it, it's when I read uh, his first published story. Um, uh, it's the same thing. He's obsessed with the Odyssey, I guess, in 1951 or whatever. Whatever. So he just keeps pumping it out. Was that uh, Beyond Lies the Wub? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is a great, great story about what a pig that's uh, got a ghost inside of it and, <laughs> and wants to talk about philosophy. <laughs> and then the, the the rest of the characters are just sort of assholes, right? That are you know, running the space empire that Philip K. Dick's uh, Variable Man has set up. It's, it, th- those sorts of stories just, like, they just blow me out of the water. Whereas this one, this this feels like it could have been written by anybody else who is writing for Analog or something, but it's got, at least it's got those themes, like, that make it so weird and obsessive, right? Why would he talk about this whole system? Like, he's got st- other stories like this, like The Gun, Right or uh, the defenders, right? Where he's set up some elaborate sort of bureaucracy, uh, the bureaucracy stories, and then there's all these functionaries trying to 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 run the bureaucracy, and the, the, you have to have meetings. <laughs> uh, I mean, we even see that in the man who japed, right? Where there's there's all these meetings, and at least there there's a a mystery going on. Here I I don't feel like there's a, a a mystery or a character to get behind, so I don't technically like it. But I think if you could fix this by making a movie version and having a I don't know a, I don't want to say a love interest, but there's no yeah. love interest in this one, right? Something well, I can't something. imagine those bureaucrats. You know, you mean Cole falls in love? Yeah, in yeah, future, yeah, yeah. The future woman. Yeah, you know, they get um some. Hollywood actor who you've seen in a million roles do the same thing. Um, they just add a little spark, and then I'm I'm okay with it because it it, it very much reads like sort of a a script of of people, you know, 
they're dropping bombs on a guy who's driving a horn. Yeah, it's very much like that, almost slapstick, like people running around in circles chasing each other and (laughs) pulling each other out of danger. Trying to kill this guy. That's it's like, wow, trying to use a trying to use a bomb instead of a of a to destroy a fly instead of a fly swatter. That's really blow up the mountain. Mm Hmm. So have have you guys read Mr. Spaceship, also by Philip mm-hmm, K. Dick? Mm-hmm. It, it covers some of the same ground. Oh, I can't remember yeah. that one. And maybe the characters are a little bit sharper in that story. Yeah, I'm not, that's I'm the not one sure. where uh, a guy's brain is detached from his body and turned into the body of a spaceship, kind of? Or um, Well, yeah, it's the same situation where they're trying to develop weapons of war, you know, to defeat some other empire. Or it may have been the colonists rebelling, I forget. But they're trying to develop this weapon of weapon, but they find they get bottlenecked because it needs like a human mind in these. I think they're kind of like kamikaze ships or something, mm. but they need the human mind in them. And a scientist who's dying anyways decides to volunteer for that. And then he actually gets the ship working, but he goes beyond the original goal. It was he doesn't make it a weapon of war. He makes it also a, a, a vehicle of exploration. Mm-hmm. And his goal is in this to restart humanity on another on another planet and thereby avoid conflict and and kind of like the, it's almost like the defenders in a way too mm-hmm. where you have this idea that you need some kind of transhumanist force to push humanity to peace it's like the ship who sang but unromantic you know that Andrew mm-hmm. Caffrey story that's terrific it's a yes. terrific story but um it doesn't that one's all about the, the romance of it right whereas this one is all about sort of the the strivings with, you know, the, in the, in the, in the, if you haven't read the ship who sang Marissa, you need to read it. It's a really good story. Very heartwarming and all oh, makes you feel all warm fuzzies and all that stuff. But, um, that universe, uh, to travel through space or hyperdrive or whatever it is, they need human minds. And so anybody who's got like a defective body back on earth, um, I don't know, they call them shell people or something like that. Um, I guess they've, you know, spina bifida or whatever it is. They basically <laughs> put them inside a spaceship and uh, say, you can be beautiful in this spaceship. And then they fall in love with their crew and then the crew dies. But that's okay. There's new crew coming. But the, the, they have longings. <laughs> it's very romantic. But <laughs> but that, that's like way in the future, right? Of, of this uh, Mr. Spaceship sort of story universe. And and with completely different take on how to deal with it. So, I, I don't I don't know if Anne McCaffrey read Mister Spaceship, but it, it would make sense. Um, but she didn't go the same direction, so it's still worth reading. I actually don't even know. I was going to is it uh, the Anderson story? I'm trying to find it here. It's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. The one that Avatar plagiarized from. Uh, oh, oh. Call Call me Joe. Joe. That's about spaceships, though. That's kind of yeah. Like, no, that's, the, yeah, that's but it's also the cripples. Enough. Yeah, the cripples are are sending their mind to the planet. Yeah, but it's also colonization. Yeah. Um, and and the the, the ship who sang, um, shell people, I think is what they're called. They they're they're not actually disembodied. They're just bodies are sort of encased. So it's not like they had their brain literally removed from their body. And their body became the spaceship, but it's it's as as good as for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that got turned into a whole series as well. 
Yeah, the, the, with, with a couple of the authors thrown yeah. in, so yeah, yeah. It became a whole the new ship universe. who returned, the ship, ship who searched, yeah. the ship who fought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't really need. To, I don't. I don't imagine anybody needs to read any of those. But the ship who sang's from '69. It looks like. Oh wait, that's the fix-up. Okay, '61. Yeah. Oh, so that's even earlier. Yeah. 61, 61 is after after uh, this one though, right? What is it, 53? I think that's right. This is yeah. 50. Yeah, 53. Yeah. What was it written? Let's find out. Um, sent to the his agent in July 53. Right. I think. Yeah. So is this his first long fiction then, or longer fiction? Evan, you say yes, right? In publication, yeah. I had a, you know, he may have been working on uh, some things, writing some of the stories. Yeah. It does really feel like he's working out, like, mm-hmm. how to put things together. Yeah, in his it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely novel structure, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, though. Like, if, if, you, if you demanded, you say, who wrote this story, Jesse, under pain of torture... I would comb over it, comb through, not comb over it, comb through it. Comb over is a different thing. Uh, I would comb through it, and I'd say, okay, uh, if my life depends on it, who wrote this story? I, I guess I could find out that it was Philip K. Dick, but it just doesn't feel like him. Like, I, I yep, there's the coffee check mark. <laughs> there's, there's the boobs mention yeah, check mark. The boobs, yeah, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, boobs. Well, that's the Rudderizer. It's definitely there, yeah. got all the little the little pieces yeah, that pieces. are like the trail of Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's the characters that are lacking. Like, totally. I would love the story if Cole was more like one of his kind of like irritable, mm. anxious, weird dudes that had a bit more stuff going on inside and was a little bit more like caused a bit more friction mm-hmm. with the other characters. And um, there's no comedy. I would love this story. There's no comedy. Yeah. I want oh. I want my comedy. Yeah, I think it was really fun, despite that. But uh, it's interesting. Definitely. It's definitely interesting. Yeah. But it doesn't. It doesn't like if I want to <laughs> sell people on Philip K. Dick, I don't hand them this. These. What's funny is, you know, I think oh, Evan and I are completely in sync uh, because he thinks uh, Galactic Pot Healers Philip K. Dick's best novel. But what? But what's so funny is I think he thinks it for a different reason. <laughs> <laughs> Evan thinks it's the best novel because it really has a deep philosophy on work, which I agree it does have that. But for me, I, I just love the the jokes, like the fat worm soup joke, oh. <laughs> the, the toilet tank, the, the silly stuff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I'm kind of with you, Jesse. It's, it is funny. I mean, I remember when you, Marissa, and I were talking about it. It's just, it's just, it's just like laughing out at parts. Like, oh my god, you went there, didn't you? Yeah. So a bathroom funny. joke, really? <laughs> he's, he's just a really, really funny guy. And even when stuff goes nowhere, like they they get on the airplane and they they do a compatibility test, and it basically doesn't work out very well. It's still hilarious, and it doesn't really bear on the rest of the plot that much, right? It's just it it's somehow he he can make it really gel with a, all that structure and plot and and ideas and stuff, but also. You just really enjoy spending the time doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Reading it is a pleasure, a, a, a super pleasure. And also it has all that intellectual stuff and it can, you can go back and think about all the themes that are going on. And it, the themes in here are definitely philokadic themes, but there's no pleasure. 
There's no elegance. There's no beauty. It's just, well, we're living in the Cold War, and now the Cold War is not Earth, uh, you know, Earth against itself. It's Earth against the others. Um, and I was thinking about what that, like, could it be an, could it be analyzed the story as in terms of like who is the aging empire here? Is it is it the British, right? It, and I was thinking about how um, these guys are like the Nazis, kind of. They've got their Wunderwaffen's, you know. They they're working on their uh, all these wonder weapon plans, and if we can just get these right, like that whole invasion board, you know, like. Yep, the big board. The big board. Look up. That's very World War, or not World War Two, but Cold, Cold War. War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought it was gonna uh, go in the direction of like the penultimate truth or something, yeah. where it was all kind of just propaganda and there was no war, yeah. war, and they were all because their work is kind of fake as well, and they're. I thought the war was going to be fake. Right. That would have been interesting if the yeah the Centaurus Empire did actually exist. That would have been an interesting way to go. And with it, 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 there's no evidence that it does other than what they exactly us, right? yeah. I mean, we we find out that they they've got warships out there and that the the one of the captains of their warships killed himself. Are they the Japanese? Like uh, I was thinking about how how this could be anal- analyzed in terms of. Just reading those, you know, I put up those recent Philip K. Dick uh, poems and stories from when he was 12 or whenever, when he was a kid in the news. He was publishing uh-huh. in the newspaper, and there was Aunt Flo was judging his work and telling him to get his coupon or whatever for his, his pay, uh, his credit. That's what it was. But read, if, tracking down those, I was spending all the time, I couldn't find them in the newspapers because they they're just really hard to find there was no search so i had to read every page of the newspaper for a long time to find to find his stuff because it's you know i don't know 30 page newspaper it comes out every day (laughs) i have to go like through weeks and weeks and weeks of newspapers looking at every headline and it was just war 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 and then domestic 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 and so it was like I know Philip K. Dick must have been reading the newspaper because he was re- going to see if his story was in there, right? But mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't read it like I am. I'm looking at like, oh, there's a here's a picture of an uh, uh, American tank giving a Japanese tank a piggyback ride. <laughs> and it's okay. And then uh, how long will the war last? Um, invest in savings bond, you know, war. So it's so like spending all that time in the war looking for Philip K. Dick stuff. It was like, okay, this is really in his in his mind and we know this from things like man in the high castle but we don't mm-hmm. normally think about how much war um plays a role it's right in the title a story called war game right and it shows up again and again in terms of um of cold war stuff but he's alive and you know growing up during world war ii and that sort of who's gonna win the war of uh, munitions and war of um of building, you know, in industry, it's in the newspaper every day. He's seeing it every day, and that's kind of what this is about. Like we, we can win World War II, no problem, right? They can see it. This number of laborers are going to work on this. Oh, here's a Japanese intern who was murdered, right? As wow, he's he's seeing this. He's growing up in it. It it's really 
got to be influential in a way that I don't feel like is obviously expressed uh, in most of the stuff that I, mm-hmm. I'm reading. But I, I just think... Well, he's definitely very interested in the Nazis. He definitely is. them in so many stories, even awkwardly, like in the simulacrum. Mm-hmm. There's that whole subplot with uh, bringing Garening back. This guy, Reinhardt, I know it's a different name, but mm-hmm. it, it's so close mm-hmm. to Reinhard Heydrich, yep. who is, of course, made as Hitler's successor, one of the, in, in Man in the High Castle, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where, mm-hmm. That alternate reality, he's not assassinated by the Czech resistance. Right. And he's, of course, one of the worst guys. Yep. He was the, he was at the Vanze conference. He was like, the you know, the organized that conference. So I don't know if, you know, but Dick certainly knew a lot about the Nazis and, and use those characters a lot. Oh, well, he does do the Japanese a little bit as well, but um, yeah. But you're right about the Japanese. The the kind of the calculation. Uh, how do we def- how do we get past the empire? Right, like yeah, the, the whole the, it's the America, It wasn't about right? conquering the U.S. Yeah. Right, it was about we, just we got to knock we out def- that. We'll knock ships. them out long enough so that we can make a treaty. Yeah. It was a it was a mathematical calculation. Maybe spreadsheets were involved. Definitely, or, definitely. or some kind of game. <laughs> And and they have they had all these like if you if you look into what's going on I, I Dan Carlin's doing a series on this right now. Um, oh yeah, Supernova in the East. That's yeah, right. Talking about how you know fucked up the internal politics of Japan were or yeah. was, and how like you know if you're anti-war in in Japan, that means you get assassinated, right? Um, and there's no such thing as anti-war amongst the people because the the, it's not so much the propaganda as the sort of, uh, I think the word actually shows up in here is Elan, right? The Japanese, well, that's the French version of, of the Japanese uh, will to empire, right? This fighting spirit. And that, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it, it's, it is highly influential on Philip K. Dick in other stuff. Like, there's a story that just baffles me still called... Um, the crystal crypt and it's like i think it's like a uh a snow globe story basically yeah. he looks at a snow globe and says huh there's an idea there it's not a very good story but for some reason there's there's the the black clad lighters and the lighters is like gau lighter they're like a kind of nazi basically and he has like nazis on mars but they're never called out as nazis um I was like, what does this all mean? It's like him sort of working through his his childhood trauma, or at least drawing upon it, about, you know, who are these these tall blonde dudes wearing black that are running around telling people how to live and, you know, where, where they can live or if they can live at all. And it's it's very bizarre to see to see that all sort of worked out. And and that's why it's funny to see Water Spider where he's he's taking drawing inspiration from his own stuff and sort of reflecting on it. He must have been just re- rereading some of his old stuff. Right? Mm. He just says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna work with this." And what if this, we're all precogs, <laughs> me and my fellow writers? It's a, it's a, also interesting the precog stuff, right? That's only him. No one else is talking about precogs. That is only his word. Right? Nobody else uses that. Mm. And he uses it again and again and again and again. So it's it's like uh, he must th- must have thought there was something to it. He mentions, I think in Water Spider, he mentions Null A as well, which is that um, 
Maybe we should do a Null A story at some point. I thought it was Null O. The Phil Dick story? Yeah, no, no. Uh, the he Null A is it. from A.E. Van Vaught. Oh. And so he's... he's uh, he also has one... Um, there's a whole bunch of stories with equation in the title. Um, what's the what's the one the famous one from Astounding Paul? Oh, the cold equations. The cold equations, right? Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think yeah. he has um, uh, one with black, not the black equation, but yeah, something like that, um, where it's it's him dealing with ideas from Null A. Uh, yeah, there's Null O as well. Yeah. Hmm. Evans. Nello as a Philip K. Dick story. Yeah. Well, ah. Yeah, that's also about technocrats, kind of uh, where some kind of post-human technocratic class emerges, and they just keep building the bigger bomb. Eventually, they get a bomb that can destroy the whole universe just because they can. He says. Uh, that's why I remember that story. It says it's a. Uh, parody of the plots and concepts of the Pawns of Nale by A.E. Van Vaughn. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. And then, of course, there's No P by William Ten. Yes. It's, it's, people pick up on this, and they're, they're all dealing with it. And the Null stuff is kind of related to Scientology, I think, as well. Because A.E. Oh, Van... It'd be fun to read all those together. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, because these are, these are things that people sort of stop talking about. Even James Patrick Kelly was doing uh, his riffs on um, on the cold equations. Uh, think like a dinosaur. There you go, think like a dinosaur. Um, so there's there's a legacy to the um, to the thinking behind what he's doing, and it's just sometimes you don't have any clue as to what it is when you just walk into it and read his story. But I, th- I think Evan, you mentioned in your podcast about um, what if the tinkerer character that he always has had been in a story like the, the great sea, right? <laughs> you said something like maybe you would have turned him into a companion, right? Instead of a malicious computer, it's a friendly computer. He yeah. just fixed them, right? Fixed them slightly, but he, he, he does some, or the autofact even, right? Right. He could have uh, fixed the autofact, right? I think then, this yeah. could be an autofact story, too, for all the mm-hmm. amount of you know competence that people have. Nobody knows how to do anything. And, and the, another thing we haven't touched on in this, maybe we should do that, is um, work as therapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was an interesting bit of uh, language about that. Um, hold on, let's see if I can find it real quick. Yeah, and uh, now, you know, the one that we talk about all the time now is, oh, I guess maybe in the 90s or the 80s, was art therapy, <laughs> which is not the same thing, right? Um, but art. Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, go for it. Oh, who, who are you, Sally demanded at last? Why do you have those on, those funny clothes? Where did you come from? Where? Cole looked around at the children. From a long way off, a long way. He shook his head slowly from side to side, trying to clear it. What's your therapy, Earl asked. <laughs> My therapy? What do you do? Where do you work? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, a couple other references to uh, occupational therapy in the story, but that's the main one. No, I, I think this is really this is really Dick being a bit of a precog. If, I mean, I don't know if people talked in the fifties this way about work, but you know, I grew up with this, you know, find work you love. And mm-hmm. if it's something you, if it's something you adore and you want to do, you know, then it's not really work and, you know, find pleasure in your work That's and all. Right. 
you know, how many, you know, just look how many people are seeking out mental health care, you know, because work is so horrible. Mm. Whatever job mm. they have is just killing them mentally. But there's still this kind of fantasy that people find work they enjoy. And it's it's a big part of, I think, American culture. I don't know if other countries have it, but it's it seems pretty well ingrained here mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in the U.S. Now that that and in Taiwan, too, I, I think people find they believe work should be enjoyable and is. And I, I think that really tampers resistance to to work because, you know, the workers movement shouldn't just be about higher wages, right? It should be about work being meaningful mm-hmm. and, and not degrading and not demeaning. But if we're told, you know, work is pleasure. So I took this as just a euphemism, you know, work as therapy in the story, just as a euphemism, mm-hmm. imagining work to be actually really horrible. And people just call it therapy as a way of tricking themselves. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Here's a question: Do you get paid for your therapy? Right? Yeah. I don't think that I don't think that the, that would make sense, right? So, uh, art therapy. I, I don't I don't understand what it is exactly, but apparently people need to uh, do art classes to be therapeutic, right? This is something that they do in mental hospitals as well, right? It's almost like kindergarten, right? It's like, okay, kids, get out your <coughs> finger paints, and we're gonna start. We're gonna start working on stuff, and then you work on stuff, and then, uh, I mean, seems reasonable. People need to have a little art in their lives, but that structure, right, where you're told you're gonna be doing your painting now, and now, now it's time to put it away because lunch is coming, and take your pills. That that kind of weird, strange. You you wouldn't say they're getting paid, right? So if 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 this is a world where you know people have their I don't know stipend from the government universal basic income or whatever it is then it's undercooked in the novel or the novella but it's certainly possible to think about it that way but thinking about how how uh, Cole right what he was doing back on in his own time is going around fixing things right and I'm sure he got paid money, but I think he'd probably also get paid in coffee and, and a sandwich, right? Mm-hmm. He's got to feed his horses, but maybe he can graze his horses in the farmer's field while he's fixing fixing the windmill, right? And that that um, it, it you really notice the lack of ability to fix things when you're in our modern society, where yeah, I can't fix my own phone, uh, I, I can try. Because um, my phone's partially openable, right? But almost all phones aren't, and you have really no choice but to take it to the uh, take it to the Apple Genius Bar or to an independent repair shop. Can't fix your own car anymore. All, almost all cars that are coming out right now have like a un, you open the hood and there's actually a plastic cover over the actual engine, and it's not there to it's not there to help you. It's there to shield you from the actual guts, right? So you can't actually do anything about it. Whoa. And also to yeah. make it look good when you're buying it, they open the hood and you see all these like shiny parts, right? And it's all plastic because well, it's not functional anymore, right? That's just the, the covering. And that that idea of us being separated from the ability to fix our own stuff, in the old days, I would think that there were a lot more people who, who would fix their own dishwashers and fix their own 
like my grandfathers would have done that, right? I don't, I, only guy who could fix my dishwasher was 75 years old and he just died like last year. So I don't know what I'm going to do now. I guess I have to replace it and I have to hire some, some company to do that, right? That, that idea is definitely in place. We are definitely wa- walking towards this Philip K. Dick future where nobody can fix things anymore and uh, a guy from the past is ultra competent he doesn't really get into the whole amish thing in this does he but i think you were sort of heading in that direction in your podcast evan um philip dick has uh well i think i must have talked a little bit about human scale technology and murray bookchin i i don't remember exactly what i said but I'd be surprised if I didn't mention Murray Bookchin. I don't think you did. Uh, yeah, Murray Bookchin is the social ecologist, right? He was the major figure in the late 20th century anarchist uh, thought, at least. I don't know, you know, how much of he was an activist later in his life, but he was big, you know, in developing this concept of social ecology, uh, sustainability not just in the environment but in in society, right? And a sustainable society and social relations will transform to sustainable, you know, environments and and worlds we can live in. And he talked a lot about technology back in the 70s, and he, and he pushed this idea of, of human-scale technology. And part of that was, you know, our energy, like, for instance, on energy, our energy, he would say, should come from local sources with and delivered through technologies that the average person can manipulate and understand. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how? I mean, democracy is kind of meaningless in that case, right? I turn on the light switch. And I'm consenting to all sorts of things that I don't understand, can't control, have no say over, right? right? The big coal power plant or nuclear power plant and the mining and and all that stuff, right? I'm part of that. But, you know, if we're really going to have democratic societies, he, you know, in sustainable communities, technology would have to be framed in that way and thought in that way. And that's certainly what the Amish stress right mm-hmm. that we think through the technologies we choose to incorporate we're not going to reject all technology but we're going to think about it right before we just accept it and i think that's actually pretty radical and and among you know for the Amish, i think it's something we need to learn from yeah definitely it's definitely i mean i i, I look into i i i i don't call it a dream exactly but i, I keep i'm sort of obsessed about tiny houses you know because it, it's you know you can get off grid uh, now, I don't want to be off-grid in the terms of I don't want to be a- access to the internet. <laughs> I want water, and I want electricity, and I want all the stuff that, you know, makes my life good. But I don't want to, uh, you know, be consenting to, yeah, fossil fuels producing my electricity. I don't want to be consenting to, as you say, when you turn on the light switch, a whole bunch of stuff. You're, you're saying yes to a whole bunch of stuff you don't want necessarily can control. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, thinking about how the Amish have this sort of only if we can fix it ourselves, only like that's why they drive those horses. It's not because they fetishize horses. Right. It's not like, you know, my niece wants to go, w- wants to spend time with horses. So she gets in her car and she drives way far away and then spends time riding horses around a like, uh, I guess, a field because. Horses aren't allowed on the road anymore, right? Uh, I'm, 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 uh, except in air, special Amish areas, because if you go down like in Lanesboro here in Minnesota, you sure. see horses, horses and horse porn truggies, and there are signs to warn you: be careful because 
these vehicles are about. Right, but they they can grow the fuel for the horses on on the land. They can they can build the housing for the horses, and they're not dependent on uh, fracking uh, in the neighboring state. Right, everything is, and they even have there's some weird policy that they can have uh, compressed air technology right this is really strange so they have like they're allowed to have blenders but they can't have electric blenders they have to retrofit the blenders to be air powered because it's been determined that uh, compressed air is a better technology it's like it's like a uh, you can compress air at any old time right you don't have to be dependent and you can you do it a whole bunch of different ways and then you can store that up and use that to run devices that would normally be run only by electricity it's it's very interesting and i i don't i've never heard of this guy murray bookchin before of course i've heard of social ecology is that what it's called yeah social ecology yeah he's i think he coined that term yeah a really interesting wikipedia article this is the kind of guy that i don't talk about in school (laughs) yeah yeah well this has been a very productive Here, show. Garden type models can be used with, ex- this is from his article, mm-hmm. garden type models can be used with extraordinary flexibility for a large variety of tasks. The light and extremely manageable. They can follow the counter of the most exacting terrain without damaging the land. Large tractors, especially those used to hot climates, are likely to have air-conditioned cabs in addiction to in addiction to pulling equipment. They may have attachments for digging post holes, for doing the work of forklift trucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes on and kind of criticizes that. So he thinks, you know, you can. We should develop farm machines that don't destroy our our land, right? That are working with the land, mm-hmm. and it's just a. It's just how you think about technology, I guess, is what he's trying to argue here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the essay is called "Towards a Liberatory Technology." Yeah, it's not that it's not that um, the efficiencies are bad, right? <laughs> it, not at all, mm-hmm. right? So having a post hole digger is a really good way of digging post holes instead of having a guy with a shovel, because a guy with a shovel is slow, and a post hole digger is fast. But if that post hole digger requires fuel that you can't produce, and parts that you can't reproduce or fix, then you're dependent on systems that are going to be dangerous for you, and more importantly, perhaps the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So it, this would make a good movie, and and I think I think I'd like to see it because then I could see those ideas expressed, and then a lot of it's visual. A lot of what's going on here in the story is very visual, and I I normally don't think that that's not where Philip K. Dick mm-hmm. spends his time, right? Uh, Molly Yoyes, uh, I think you pointed out, Evan has blue skin. I didn't remember that at all because it's only yeah. mentioned once. I think you mentioned once and uh, she, I, but I hear, I know her voice really well. She's really funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this is a, a much more visual thing and I think it would work. It would work pretty well. I, I don't think Kate they always could, adapt the wrong, wrong stories and they adopt them and they adapt them in, in kind of the wrong way. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like galactic pot healer. I don't know with big budgets now, maybe, yeah. but I don't know if anyone would, would want to watch it, you know, no real action scene, I guess. 
just a psychic it's duel or something. Sad that we need that. Yeah. <laughs> but scene. this struck me as a little cinematic when I was rereading mm-hmm. it the last Definitely. time. Definitely. It fits. And some of these other stories that they try to pull out into a TV show or a, or a movie doesn't quite work. I was just thinking this would be a good Electric Dreams episode. No, I don't trust them. We can't trust them. (laughs) We know what they do with stuff. I thought having them, especially because it wasn't US, I was like, they wouldn't do those action scenes and stuff, and they'd be really interesting to do Philip K. Dick stories. But I feel like that was kind of a failed experiment. Someone on Goodreads said that this has been made into a movie, which is Idiocracy, which I don't totally agree with. No, no, no. no, no. No. Idiocracy is Marching Morons. Yeah, Marching Morons. Yeah, Yeah. I I can see kind of the structure, how it would be the same with machine-reliant people instead, but yeah, it's not really. But you you could make that kind of a comedy out of it. Uh, Evan, I... Yeah, the time-traveling guy who whose abilities somehow fit into that world. It, yeah. Like even Mark Twain had that story. Mm, yeah. You mentioned the uh, Connecticut Yankee. And I was thinking that actually while I was listening to it and then I listened to your podcast. Yeah. It is a kind of reverse Connecticut Yankee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I'm, I'm trying to think of other stories which work like that, where someone in the past goes to the future and, it, and they work out. Um, I know there's little bits of flight, Flighting to Forever by Paul Anderson, where the 20th century man's presence helps the present. I mean, not because they're super incompetent, it's just because he has a time machine and he has a, he has the vitality that they don't actually get things done. But he's not he's not like the super driver, and he then goes off into the future afterwards by himself. So, but yeah, it's just like the whole idea of humanity or a country degenerates and it takes someone from the heroic past to come and save save the war, save the country and bring it back to rights again um oh little big by uh, john crawley has um um what's his name um german emperors show up to rule america because um wilhelm? who's just slipping no no not wilhelm no 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 um frederick okay yeah, she, she shows up to uh, take over America because America's kind of not doing great and the fairies are coming back and whatnot. So this whole it, – it, 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 it kind of ties in almost like a little bit to the whole Arthurian thing about the, the return of the king sort of mm-hmm. thing from sleeping mm-hmm. and because, you know, we, we, we need somebody from the past now. I like Mr. this time Mr. travel stuff normally. I, I, I like the skull quite a bit. I like um, uh, the – paycheck and the captive market he does time travel quite a bit uh, we mentioned dr mm-hmm. futurity and time pond same same thing right um it's it's interesting because he's he it's so metaphorical when he does he doesn't care about the actual mechanism right um mm-hmm. and and he doesn't also he doesn't normally do the same uh i guess the skull's a bit like that but he doesn't do the normal time travel thing where you know like Heinlein does with uh, All You Zombies or uh, the other one that he's famous for. Um, I wanted to ask Evan, um, have, you haven't read For Us the Living, the Heinlein novel that gets, gets mentioned in um, in this the astounding book we read? That's the... No, I... Okay, so this is, this is his first novel that was never published during his lifetime. Um... Subtitled "The Comedy of Customs," it has a uh, a, 
I bel- yeah, I'll just read the plot summary here. Perry Nelson, a normal 1939 engineer and Navy pilot, is driving his automobile when it he has a blowout, skids off a cliff, and wakes up in the year 2086. Though he is apparently killed in the summer, he reappears in extremely cold snow, nearly dies again by freezing, and is saved by a fur-clad woman named Diana. The exact circumstances of his being killed and reborn are half a century na- later are never ex- fully explained. Later in the 21st century, people seem strangely incurious, showing little interest in how he came to be among them, or rather take his appearance for granted and proceed to explain to him the details of the social and political setup of their world. And at the time uh, Heinlein wrote this, he was really into uh, social credit. You know about this? Social credit? Oh, yeah. Well, I remember that from the book. Right. Um. So social credit is... Uh, for a long time, this is a really strange phenomenon that happened in the early 20th century, just before the war, I guess. Um, but when I was a kid, the government of British Columbia was a social credit government. Uh, we called them the Socreds. <laughs> it sounds like a science fiction term now. I think about it, but it was. It does. Um, uh, Premier Vanderzam. And the Socreds, right? Uh, I wrote a letter to Premier Vanderzam about some uranium mining when I was a kid, and he wrote back, "Dear Mrs. Willis," <laughs> or Miss Willis. <laughs> oh, like, dude, I'm a dude. Anyways, he uh, he he was running the province. Basically, they're just a conservative par- political party, but their name was a holdover from that time period, and the idea was based on this weird economic theory that is seemingly more and more relevant, which is government needs to send money to individual people, um, as in social credit, as in social monetary distribution. And Alberta had the same thing up until, uh, I guess, I don't know, the 60s or so, the Social Credit Party was active. But it stayed active in BC for a long, long time. It's it's gone now, and the replacement is the quote-unquote Liberal Party of British Columbia. But it, it's it's very interesting to see this sort of um, ancient sort of political ideas coming back in after I don't know 40 years or so of uh, neoliberalism. So I, I was thinking this it's probably not a very good book, but it's probably interesting. Because Heinlein was an interesting thinker, even if he was mostly wrong about everything. Oh, speaking of Heinlein, this is completely sidebar to our own podcast. Did you hear about the the new version of Number of the Beast that they're going to publish? No. I, tw- I tweeted about it a few days ago. Phoenix Pick recently announced that working with the Heinlein Prize Trust, they have been able to reconstruct the complete text of an unpublished novel written by Robert A. Heinlein. Heinlein wrote this as an alternate text for The Number of the Beast. This text of approximately 185,000 words largely mirrors the first third of the public text, but then deviates completely with an entirely different storyline and ending. Hmm. So, yeah. I don't so know if I, I want to read it. I, I, I liked Number I, of the Beast I, when I read it when I was a kid, but... Uh, I also I know I spend a lot of time going, huh? What? <laughs> yeah, but it had but a cool idea, kind of. It 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 yeah. So I'm I'm curious about that, but that's not germane to. Well, but that is kind of germane to this because you know, in number of beasts, they go hopping around time and space. Mm-hmm. So you know, and and universe. So I am curious universes when they too, actually, right? That's they go from and universes, universes yeah. So so I think they visit uh, 
uh, Barsoom, right? And Oz. And Oz, yeah. yeah. And uh, see, that would actually, if in the right hands, that would actually make a much better TV show than it would be a book, I would think, because yeah, because it's like, be sliders, like sliders, except with uh, yes. uh, some some sex. Because <laughs> Heinlein sliders with some sex. Yeah, because <laughs> Heinlein likes sex, and he put a lot of sex in his stuff, and. I don't think there was any sex in sliders. It was it was for you know if you found kids. the if you found the right uh, person in Hollywood to say it that it's like sliders but sex you could probably get yourself uh, writing a I show. Justin, I don't think I don't <laughs> think anybody knows sliders anymore. It's not like it's that's that is sad. Right, true but sad. Yeah, but did you ever see that show, Marissa or Evan? Mm-mm. Yeah, I saw a few episodes. It, it has a great premise. It just doesn't. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't use it as well as it could in some, but every once in a while they, you know, I, I, there was a, uh, other shows that did that where they, at the end of the, uh, the episode they're in the new world and that would sort of tease you to go to the next episode where it's basically mm-hmm. they travel through dimensions. So, you know, they're, they're on a planet where everybody's, uh, just like them, except, uh, the black people are in charge and the white people are the second class citizens right Right. and then the next episode um it's it's uh everybody's a farmer and nobody knows what electricity is and then the next one it's Mm. communists took over the united states right um yeah yeah i think we need this i think we we need utopias and i think it's it's a sadly diminished genre maybe it's coming back i did pick up this anthology of solar punk and the stories weren't that great, mm-hmm. but I just like that they're trying mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. um, yeah, utopian maybe, again. Yeah, maybe we need some green shoots away from this grim dark mm-hmm. that's dominating the genre. Definitely. It's so bleak, all of it. And like all the, like, uh, my thing I keep coming back talking to is this post apocalyptic uh, story. Like, every, it's always the same. It's There's no government that everyone's Dude, killing each I've been, other. I w- Such a pessimistic view of humanity. I spent, I spent last nuts. night, late last night, I went, uh, I do this every once in a while, I go to, go to the Netflix menu and then I search Netflix original and it, after you scroll mm-hmm. down past the, the ones that are currently there, they have all the secret hidden ones that are upcoming and it's just a title and then maybe a date uh, associated with it. And then a little description. And I was reading through them, you know, because it's just some some title and no no visuals. So I read through every one of them. Lots and lots of science fiction and almost all post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I'm like, no, these are... It's too easy. Post-apocalyptic is just too easy. That's why they like it. It's like zombies. It's really easy to... Make a zombie. Well, I wouldn't mind if they did it and showed people cooperating and forming communities. But they don't. Yeah, I like, mean, that's, that's not what they do. That's a, a bottom was... up, like an anarchist, like an anarchist taking a post-apocalyptic story would probably come away showing people would be happier and better and you know more sustainable or whatever. I mean, that's what they think. I, been, I, I feel like them. that's kind Without of why we're drawn well, to it. Well organized collectively. Yeah. Do you like Evan? Is is one of your favorites, Doctor Blood Money? Because that, that's that. Yeah, that's the point I make about Doctor Blood Money. Whenever I talk about it, is there there, there is conflict and, and turmoil and, and issues, but there's uh, those communities largely survive, and the the world after the the war is not 
dog eat dog. No, it's horse. Uh, uh, human eat horse. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I noticed uh, that Philip K. Dick does have a thing for horse meat. Um, it shows up. Yeah. What? Uh, well, the, it shows up in this. You know, the two horses get killed or bl- blown uh-huh. up, and then there's the horse gets eaten in Doctor Blood Bunny. I guess this is another thing for the Redderizer. <laughs> and there's a horse. There's a horse murdered in Confessions of a Crap Artist. Right, and also wow. Philip K. Dick oh, talks man. about being so poor he he would go to the pet food store and buy horse meat. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true, right? And then also I mean, horse lover fad in ballads. Yeah, but that's his, his name, right? Philip means yeah. horse lover, so he's definitely. He's, Why is he murdering them all? Then? <laughs> I don't know. Horse better. <laughs> oh, there, there is something about Confessions of a Crap Artist I forgot to mm-hmm. tell you about. I just noticed it uh, when I was rereading that. That was written in like 59. Mm-hmm. And the character, the crap artist, he's always interested in weird conspiracy theories and, and off-the-wall stuff. But he talks about, he uses this word talking about his, basically his pulp science fiction magazines. I guess this is another meta observation mm-hmm. where he calls them not science fiction magazines, calls them pseudoscience magazines. (laughs) And there's a scene in there where he goes to one of these occult meetings and they're essentially auditing each other. Oh God. It's like a Dianetic scene. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of it till we read that, that astounding book, how much astounding was being influenced by the stuff at that time in the, in the fifties. And and Philip K. Dick is a misfit, right? He doesn't fit into that. And yet he is influenced by it. What's funny is I think of this as uh, it would be much better fit for Astounding, um, just with all the the techno the sort of structural technological sort of competent man stuff. But I can see why uh, Campbell would have rejected it too, basically because he he's yeah he's got all, he's got all the right things, but he he's working his answers are all wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The uh, we need more. I don't know something about the humans being better than the the uh, than the aliens, which we never see. The aliens are really interesting in their absence. So if you were going to do an adaptation of this, um, you can't leave them off screen, right? Like he does, because it would just people would not accept it. N- nobody in the writing room would say, yeah, you can get away with that. You you would have to show their starship out there, sort of stopping the humans from going or something. Mm. Uh, and even like when we find out there's no explosion, right? With the with the Icarus, um, there's no actual explosion in the story, right? We just find out, and that would not be acceptable for for a film, and it wouldn't be acceptable. No, no, no. It would have to be. Yeah, you would have to. Spend a lot of the budget to show the the big bad boom. Yeah, well, not even that much of the budget. You just have to show, you know, you'd have to show an alien spaceship or civilization or something, um, and 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 that takes the focus off of what the story is really about. So maybe maybe it wouldn't work. It would definitely change it, right? Philip K. Dick would would not. He didn't put it in here, probably because he didn't care about it. That's that's not the problem he's interested in. And the, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting story. I'm just, uh, it doesn't fill me with love like so many, or wub, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> like wub, so many of true us wub. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Hey, it's variable, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm not I, thinking I, of it that I, way, but no. <laughs> I was skimming through the, the, the collected stories. You know, these are um, arranged in the order of they were written or sent to the agent or whatever, right? Yeah, sort this of. May be the first, this may be the first tinkerer. Whoa, shit. Okay. There, there are... Save it for the podcast. Are close Save it, save it for the podcast. Save it. Don't waste it. All right, but you have to remember to actually talk about it on the podcast because we always do that, and then we never come back to the. <laughs> All right. Well, well, why don't we get? Uh, why don't we get into it? Uh, I just will remind you of uh, upcoming upcoming shows uh, before we do that. Oh yeah. And then you can think about that instead of spoiling things. That's the only real kind of spoilers, Paul. <laughs> oh, well played it. Well played, Jesse. Well okay. Tried. So in two weeks we're gonna do type P. Uh Paul, you're in for that. Evan's in for that. And Marissa is yeah. not interested in sailing the South Seas looking for utopias, apparently. Oh. Wait, what is this one? Herman Melville novel. Ah, right. Do we have an audio version? Uh we will. Um I I assume there's one on Liverpool. There's Libravox. a Liprovox. Yeah. One. Mm. I don't, I don't, it, not the best. I think. Sell, seller on okay. it, Evan. Seller on Type Well, <laughs> it's. Uh, what are your feelings on Empire? It's a pretty, uh, I think, con- still contemporary and useful critique of Empire. Mm. And the impact of Empire on on indigenous people, which I think is still relevant today, given even things happening in Brazil. That sounds pretty good. Um, Where's the science fiction connection? It's of it's a very interesting kind of working class ethnography too. Sounds good. There's so much of the novel is is ethnography, but it's not from the elitist point of view. It's from working class point of view. There's work resistance. Uh, so thematically, it's kind of rich science fiction. I don't know. You haven't mentioned the cannibals it's, yet. Yeah, there's well, yeah, there's cannibals in science fiction. There's cannibals in it. There's a cannibal tribe. Basically, they turn out to be pretty good people, but but cannibals. Well, let me. I haven't read the book, but let me let me mm-hmm. fix it. Let me uh, man. So Jesse explain this for you, Evan. Okay. Yeah. Marissa, the the boat is a starship, but the crew is mutinous, and it's told from the you know the lower ranks point of view. Ah. Uh, hey. Have you talked about this before? I feel like you've mentioned this to me before, maybe. Well, it's Omu where you have the mutiny, and this one is just a couple guys run away. There you go. Okay. They, is this a novel? The or... And 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 they're yeah, and they 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 land on a nearby planet. It's with uh, ha- eleven which hours has, forty-two minutes. Which they don't know to go left or right. If they go left, it's the cannibals. If you know, <laughs> or right. Well, they don't know which direction. They know there's good guys and cannibals, ah. and they have to figure out which tribe to trust. And it's based right. on a true story. Yeah, he actually, Melville was actually, I think, just six weeks in the Marquesas until another ship came by and picked him up. But this this sort of, this actually happened to him. Huh. It's just exaggerated and fleshed out. All right. There's uh, hot people in it. 
hot, hot people. <laughs> man, no, male, men and women. So it's interesting trying to, from a queer studies perspective. You can see Melville's. Uh, I can't remember what like, Herman Melville's you know, take is. You know how, I don't know if you've read any Melville, but he's always drooling about hot sailors and. There's a lot Island of sperm in Moby Dick, I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a joke. <laughs> if you read Billy Budd, you know, you know how he's always talking about this angelic, beautiful young sailor man. Oh, well, Here it's the Pacific that. Islanders. But but he's a, he it's a, the the attraction is bisexual. So there's They don't um, do labels. <laughs> All right. Um we'll let All right, well put me down as uh, as interested and I'll see if I can All read right. another book in She's, a short uh, time. Typey curious. That's what I was Type-y going for. You curious. stole it, Paul. <laughs> 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 okay, I'm on um, form today. Yep, stealing my my thunder. All right. Um, can you also put me down as interested for some of your future episodes that aren't on the um, schedule yet? Yeah, sure. Like what? Time machine. The time machine. Okay, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And drowned world. Drowned world. Well, we can we can talk about when we can schedule some of these. Um, yeah. Those are two favorites. Uh, and the drowned world. Where is it? There it is. 